three, two, one, zero, 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 zero. From the studios of WORQ in Wisconsin, this is the Stand Up For The Truth podcast. Today's issues, overlooked headlines, and biblical observations, equipping the remnant around the globe. Got your sword handy? This is Stand Up For The Truth. And we welcome our online listeners at Q90FM.com slash listen on your desktop player or Q90FM.com slash app. Brand new podcast today, Tuesday, January 23, 2024. Good morning, Mary. Good morning. Good to be back for another week. See what the Lord would have us do for the kingdom. Um, we got Andy Woods today. He's back with us, pastor, author, speaker. So glad he has some time to spend with us today. Um, I want to announce real quickly, though, um, and a 30th anniversary. Q90FM has been broadcasting for 30 years as of February the 1st, and our household was tuned in on February 1st, 1994. And so Thursday, February 1st, next week, there's an open house here from 2 to 7 p.m. We're all going to be here. We would love to see your shiny, happy faces here, talk to you about the ministry, look forward to what the Lord's going to do. Um, for the 31st year. So praise the Lord. We hope to see you on February 1st here at the studio from 2 to 7. My scripture this morning is Psalm 5, which says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. Praise the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we come before you in gratitude, with a heart filled with praise for all that you have done, and that you promise to hear us when we call. Lord, you're an ever-present help in times of trouble, and we trust in that verse and so many, Lord. As we see the world around us descending into delusion and wickedness, we ask to be found watching and waiting, ready to give an answer to those who ask us about our hope and And so, Lord, we pray to be an uncompromising people, single-minded, walking in the Spirit. We lift up Andy to you. Thank you for the gifts that you've given him, for his service to you and your people. Protect his health, his loved ones, and give him increasing wisdom in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, Andy Woods, my guest today, pastor of Sugarland Bible Church in Sugarland, Texas, author, speaker, president of Chafer Theological Seminary, He teaches verse by verse through the scriptures. Uh, So great to welcome him back. Always a lot of great insights into the Word and the times. Good morning, Andy. Hey, Mary. Great to be with you all today. Thanks for having me. You have a prophecy conference coming up in February. Your website is slbc.org, and there's information there. But what do you want people to know about that? Because that is coming up in, oh, around a month or so. Who's speaking? Uh, What kind of topics are we looking at? Yeah, thank you. We're we're doing um, kind of a... Uh, creation and and prophecy conference. You know, Second Peter three, you know, connects the doctrine of creation with the doctrine of the end times, and so we wanted to do oh. a conference on that. And so uh, we have, uh, you know, some guys teaching some prophetic th- themes. We've got Dr. David Reagan as one of the speakers, and. Um, a good friend of mine, Olivier Melnick, uh, who talks a lot about, you know, his ministry is basically exposing anti-Semitism. He's going to be one of the speakers. And then uh, to, to kind of uh, pick up the creation end of it, we have creation uh, scientist Russ Miller, 
I think some of these guys you probably know. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Russ Miller is going to be presenting, and so it's just going to be a great time. It's February 23rd uh, and 24th. We have a, a banquet at a nearby country club uh, fr- uh, that Friday evening, and then we have an all-day Saturday conference, and then we have these guys uh, sticking around um, and presenting at Sugarland Bible Church right. during our regular church services that following Sunday. And so we would love for people to come for the whole weekend if they can do it, and they just go to the slbc.org website, and it's right there on the home page. Okay. And very easy to sign up for, and uh, love to see love to see as many people there as possible. Yeah, yeah. I see on the website it's from the flood to the final days. That sounds very intriguing. Um, is there any live stream, or will there be media available afterward? How do you plan on uh, handling sessions? Is, is there any options there? Yeah, it's all it's all uh, our philosophy is to you know to get the word mm-hmm. out as, to as many as possible. So there's actually free live streaming. Um, through the whole thing if people can't make it and uh, you know there's the sessions will be archived on okay. our Sugarland Bible Church website and YouTube channel Great. you know uh, subsequent to the conference okay sounds good I always like to let people know about conferences because even if you can't make it with technology there's so many great ways to take in this this teaching so Great. And then, Andy, you are teaching, when you're teaching on Sundays, what are, what are you in right now? What books are you teaching in, or what book? Well, we ha- we actually have two services, a Sunday school kind of hour, and then the main service. So I'm going through Second Thessalonians right uh-huh. now, dealing with all that, that chapter, you know, about the restrainer being removed mm. and all those things, the, the temple being desecrated. And then during the main service, we're teaching through the book of Genesis, and start of the new year, we just hit the Joseph uh, story account, and so we, we're right there in Genesis 37. Great, great, and people can watch that live too. I mean, I've seen your Sunday services, so yeah, um, it's all it's all there. Great, and the days are getting shorter <laughs> in terms of the Lord coming back. Yeah. So we're just trying to get the word out, you know, and we just praise the Lord for the technology that He's given us in this time of history. Uh, where we're able to do this. Yes, agreed. Sugarland Bible Church, slbc.org. We're going to look at Israel today. Um, we're a little over 100 days uh, since Hamas uh, committed their savagery, and the dust has not settled. Um, but it's also not at the top of the uh, headlines anymore. It's not the top of the hour story. There's so much going on. Of course, we're distracted by elections and all that sort of thing. So uh, we're hoping to answer some questions people might have today at this maybe 100, 506 day. Um, and I think I want to start right out with Zionism because um, uh, people like to place blame for all kinds of things, even the church does. And Andy, I want to ask you, what is Zionism? Historically, biblically, I know it, it began in the late 19th century. Could you just give us a good definition of what Zionism is? Well, a Zionist, and you know, I would consider you know myself a Zionist, mm-hmm. and, and I'm probably when I describe it, you know, you'll you'll consider yourself a Zionist too. But a Zionist is basically somebody who believes that the Jewish people have a right, you know, to return to their ancient homeland and reside there. And the person that gave them that right is God, you know, who gave them that ancient homeland going all the way back in the book of Genesis, and God in his, I think every prophet, Old Testament prophet other than Jonah, talks about it, that in the end times God is going to recycle his people um, from worldwide dispersion, uh, where they will be in discipline 
for a long period of time and recycle them back to their homeland and uh, in preparation for his end-time program. And so a Zionist is someone who believes God is doing that right now, and the Jews have a right to live there because God said he would do this. And a Zionist is also someone who believes the legal system favors, you know, what's happening. Nothing that's happening with Israel is illegal. It goes right along with what the uh, World War I uh, powers did post-World War I at the uh, the arrangements that were made in the San Remo uh, conference in the 1920s in San Remo, Italy. It fits exactly with United Nations uh, partition for the, the Jewish people um, post-World War II. And so a Zionist is someone who basically believes Israel has a legal right to be in that land right now and a theological right. And you can say whatever you want about the Jewish people. Um, I don't think we have to agree with every policy of the Israeli mm-hmm. government. God didn't. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. you read the Old Testament <laughs> and you'll see that. But um, you can't say that Israel is, is doing anything illegal you know, mm-hmm. at the present time. So that's my understanding of what a Zionist is. Mm-hmm. And that's a great definition. And I... I hear from time to time, even in the church and among uh, amillennial churches, that the Israeli Jews that are there now are not the Jews of the Bible. Now, they've, they're gathered in unbelief. Um, but, Andy, I want to ask you, you know, who is in the land? Because Jews were always present in the land. Every Jew is a descendant of another previous generation of Jews. It's not, it's not rocket science here. Um, but people say, well, that couldn't possibly be the fulfillment of prophecy. Um, God didn't put anything in anybody's heart, you know, Theodore Herzl, Eliezer Ben Yehuda, who are these people, and and uh, could God not put that in their hearts to to reestablish this land? So how do we answer uh, the Israeli Jews over there are not the Jews of the Bible, 1948 is not a miracle, and they seem to believe that that is the absolute truth on this. Well, how do you answer that? Well, part of it is people want to look at Israel in the land today, and they want to see um, a Christ-believing nation, Christ-accepting nation. And only then will they accept you know, it being part of the plan of God. But the truth of the matter is, when you study very carefully the prophecies, particularly, I mean, countless prophecies, but the two prominent ones that come to mind are Ezekiel 36, and then it's illustrated with the vision of the dry bones in chapter 37. I mean, you see a twofold regathering. You know, where they're going to be restored first in unbelief. That would be the bones and the muscles forming. And then God said to Ezekiel, prophesy again. And he prophesied again to the bones. And it's very clear that the bones represent the whole house of Israel. And when he prophesied a second time, um, the the breath, which is the Hebrew word for ruah, uh, um, meaning spirit, uh you know, uh, Ruah translated uh, is is breath or spirit. When he prophesied a second time, this Holy Spirit goes into the bones. So there's a twofold regathering. So what we're seeing right now is not the final act. It's just the beginning. And so a lot of people don't really understand those two stages because they're in churches that really don't emphasize Bible prophecy or maybe they're in replacement theology, you know, type churches that don't, you know, that, that misconstrue these prophecies and make it 
sound like it's the church on the day of Pentecost that Ezekiel is talking about. But no, Ezekiel is very clear. Ezekiel 37, verse 11, you know, these bones represent the whole house of Israel. And part of this issue relates to something called the Khazar theory, where a group of people, you know, in the Middle Ages, Gentiles, converted to Judaism. And so a lot of people try to argue, based on the Khazar theory, that uh, the Israelis of today came from that Gentile group, and they really aren't, you know, true, uh, you know, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so a lot of people, you know, float the Khazar theory constantly, and they'll say, you know, the Jews in the land today are not true Jews. But the, the Khazar theory, when you study it out, has been so thoroughly refuted uh, just to give you one name, there's a fellow that we had at one of our conferences with Chafer Seminary named Bennett Greenspan, and he's basically an expert, you know, in in uh, you know genealogies and things of that nature. And he said, you know, genetically, uh, it's it's obvious, and there's no, there's no argument to be made really that the Jews in the land of Israel aren't aren't really Jews. They are Jews. And we can break down, in many cases, their tribal identity. Mm-hmm. You know, a Kohen, which ones are Kohen, meaning priest, you know, coming from the tribe of Levi, etc. So the study of genetics, genealogies, has advanced to the point where the Khazar theory, you know, has been completely and totally refuted and discredited. Mm-hmm. Yet a lot of people post um, the events of October the 7th of last year, I notice they're tr- are refloating the Khazar theory and trying to argue that the Jews there aren't, aren't really Jews. So the bottom line is the Jews there are true Jews uh, uh, in terms of genealogy. And yes, they're in unbelief nationally, mm-hmm. but um, so what? You know, right. God said you know they'd be gathered in unbelief first. Right, right. And hardening has happened in part. I mean, I don't know why these verses are so obscure to a lot of the churches these days, Romans 11. Um, talks about hardening has happened in part until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. So there's your there's your plot right there. Um, and yeah. then there's also when you're talking about the Khazars, I'm thinking of British Israelism. We, there are cults out there that say that uh, the crown heads of Europe, it, it, the ten lost ten tribes, all that sort of conniving and configuring. Um, but you know, Andy, if God has rejected Israel, Jesus certainly didn't say so. And and if if his callings and his promises have no expiration date, now we're questioning God's character. So, Andy, there's an awful lot of mischief that comes along by saying uh, who a Jew is and who a Jew is not. So I appreciate uh, your comments there. I was not aware of the the Khazar theory. I hadn't heard that before. So that's uh, that's very very interesting. Also, the wholesale rejection, I think, in a lot of corners of dispensationalism. Uh, enters in here. Do you think that rejection is, you know, as far as, um, you know, the, the plan that God has for the Gentiles, which is alluded to in Romans, but, um, do you think that dispensationalism being dragged through the mud in these times has something to do with those who are confused about who the church is and who the Jews are? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there's a whole philo- uh, theology that arose with Augustine, you know, in the fourth century. Uh, in his book, The City of God, where he, you know, basically articulated that God is through with Israel. Uh, All of Israel's promises have been spiritually transferred to the church. You have to deliteralize those promises Mm -hmm. to make them work, and they only transfer the blessings to the church. They never (laughs) 
transfer the curses. Right. Right. Uh, the, you know, the dis- God says, if you step out of line, Israel, here's some curses. We never get those in the church. We only get the, the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Augustine probably is the most influential theologian in church history in terms of his influence, good and bad, I think. Mm-hmm. And most uh, churches uh, are kind of spun, even the Protestant reformers, they came into existence out of Augustine's shadow. You know, John Calvin, for example, in his Institutes, uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion and his other writings, even though those were came about, you know, over a thousand years later, he, Calvin keeps saying over and over again, Augustine says, Augustine sure. says, mm-hmm. Augustine says, and so he's quoting Augustine constantly. And so even the Protestant reformers with the churches they started uh, post-Reformation were under, are under the influence of Augustine as well. And so God had to really do a work and raise up a separate body of men, you know, that you identified as dispensationalists, uh, and that sounds like a scary word to people, but all a dispensationalist is is somebody who wants to take the whole Bible at face value, mm-hmm. not part of it. Right. You know, the Protestant reformers started the Reformation on the basis of taking some of the Bible, literally, you know, related to soteriology. But dispensationalists arose a few, you know, down down the road a few centuries. And they just wanted to take the Reformation hermeneutic method of interpretation and apply it to the whole Bible. And when you do that, you see very fast that Israel is not the church, and the church is not Israel, and God has a program for Israel, and he has a program for the church. And one of these days, the program for the church will be over, will be in heaven, will be translated to heaven, and then God will you know, complete his unfinished work with with Israel, bringing them back into their own land, you know, first in unbelief and then later in faith. And God has to do that because that's what his word says he would do when taken at face value. So, you know, because dispensationalism has taken such a beating uh, post-Augustine, I think this is why so many Christians are confused on this issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Agreed. I really uh, like your definitions there. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about um, uh, the Middle East politics here and Israel oppressing the Palestinians. You know, uh, Israel stole, uh, the Zionists stole their land. There's a moral equivalence article mean, uh, uh, issue here, meaning there's equal guilt on both sides. <laughs> How'd we get to that point, Andy? I have no idea. But the numbers uh, really tell a lot. Older Americans are the only ones who really believe that Israel's response was justified. So uh, among 65 and over, 81% believe that Israel's response is justified. And then you go down the line, it reduces until you get to the 18 to 24-year-old group. Only 27% believe Israel's response was justified. So could you maybe um, expound a little bit on this moral equivalence argument and wow, it just what what is it about these youngsters that they don't seem to get the big picture? Yeah, I mean, well, who is oppressing whom? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Israel uh, prior to two thousand and five had authority over where the trouble came from. October seventh, you know, the Gaza Strip, there in the southwestern border of Israel, and when you look at pictures. Pre-2005, it almost looks like a a beach resort. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. 
Well, they uh, turned that area over to um, the people of Gaza in 2005 under international pressure, largely. And uh, that, that group had one and only one election, and they elected Hamas, and the whole beach area was destroyed, the resort area was destroyed, the, the beautiful you know, botanical gardens were destroyed, and they turned it into a war zone. And they, you know, used uh, these tunnels, you know, ter- tunnels of terror, you know, to tunnel underground to, um, you know, uh, kidnap Israelis and the rockets and all of these kinds of things that came into Israel. The attack that came into Israel October the 7th came from Gaza. And so they took something that was beautiful, they, they Islamicized it, and they turned it into an absolute, it's like a terror cell within your own country is the closest mm. thing I could analogize it to. And so when people say the Israelis, you know, are somehow oppressing the people of Gaza, I mean, if, if the Israelis are doing that, they're not doing a very good job. <laughs> because when you oppress someone, you don't give them, you know, political freedom to do what they want. Right. And that's essentially what happened. So, I mean, these are just facts to keep in mind because the younger generation, they're now marching in these, uh, you know, political rallies at our universities under the slogan, from the river to the sea, you know, the land of Palestine shall be free. Mm-hmm. And you, you query some of these young people, well, what river are you talking about? And what sea are you talking about? And most of them don't have any idea. They're, they're, you know, the the river uh, is the Jordan, the sea is the Mediterranean. And so when you say from the river to the sea, the land of, of Palestine shall be free, what they're we're saying without realizing it is we want to remove the Jewish presence completely, you know, from that part of the world. Right. And that's where the oppression is, Uh what we've done in Gaza, you know, we want to do for the whole land of Israel. And very, very sadly, as you go into the demographics and you get, you know, younger and younger, uh, because of, I think, brainwashing in the school system, um, more and more young people are sort of anti-Israel in their thought process because they think Israel is the oppressor. And so they buy into arguments not based on fact, mm-hmm. Uh, not based on te- texts of scripture, but based on feelings. And most right. of them are not getting their information from the Bible. They're not getting their information from their pastors, if they have pastors. They're not getting their information from, you know, cable news outlets or news shows, political news shows. They get them from these little images on TikTok and these little, you know, short videos. Uh, sometimes on X, formerly called Twitter. That's where they get their information from. And because their information is so splintered that they're getting, they're lulled into thinking that Israel is the oppressor, and they move into an argument based on on feelings. Mm -hmm. Hey, we don't like oppression, even though they don't have all of the facts. We don't like oppression, Mm -hmm. and so they mindlessly march in these, you know, political parades where the mantra really is calling for the eradication of the Jewish nation. And so the younger you go on the demographic, um, unfortunately, 
the more anti-Israel they are, you know, in their thought process. Mm-hmm. And I'm just trying to give the explanation as to why I think that's so. Yeah, yeah, well, I agree. And they go to schools that major in this social emotional learning, SEL, and how does that make you feel? And and they really are not getting critical thinking skills or, or the proper history or anything. There's an article uh, in the tablet called The Return of the Swastika, and it starts out uh, with a, an account of Christmas Day 1959, a newly uh, rededicated synagogue in Cologne, Germany, was defaced with swastikas. And then it kind of started to spread uh, all over West Germany, targeting other synagogues and cemeteries. And uh, death to Jews, Jews go home were slogans that accompanied this. And actually, within a very short time, it spread to 34 countries. In the U.S. alone, there were 637 incidents of this kind uh, in uh, 236 cities. And it was shocking to a lot of people. That was only 15 years after the end of the Holocaust. And it kind of petered out, but it's back. Um, now they are displaying uh, the uh, swastika on college campuses. They're mixing it in with the Israeli flag. Um, you know, people are holding up cell phones with large swastikas. To me, that that's just... Uh, that it's just not letting up. What I'm saying is it's it's continuing to grow and grow in ways that I didn't anticipate. Uh, what do you think about the whole swastika epidemic? Um, I, th- I think it's just appalling. Yeah, well, it is appalling. I mean, I'd be I'd be interested. You could send me that article okay. if you don't mind, because yeah. I could I'd love to see that. But the one I saw is uh, right after the events of October seventh. There were little swastikas put over you know Jewish homes you know, in France, you know, to sort of identify, uh, you know, where the Jews lived in terms of, you know, where they're personally uh, residing. And, of course, it is horrifying because that's the part of the world, you know, where the Jews were greatly persecuted in the with the Holocaust and the World War II era. And what it demonstrates to me in the, just kind of stepping back and looking at the big picture is, that this anti-Semitism issue, the irrational hatred of the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is transgenerational mm-hmm. and irrational because it doesn't really come from a human source. It comes from the fallen angelic realm. You know, if your listeners were to read Revelation 12 today, uh, all 17 verses, they'll see it spelled out there you know, where the dragon or Satan, after he's pushed out of heaven permanently in the second half of the tribulation period, you know, wages a war. The Greek is polemos, where we get the word polemical. Mm. And he uh, wages a war against the woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars. And he has great wrath, the Greek word there is orge, great wrath, you know, against her. And so that shows me that anti-Semitism is angelic, you know, from the fallen angelic realm. And Satan is uh, cunning enough to know that God is going to fulfill his program through the Jews. And so in his very twisted, darkened mind, he thinks if he gets rid of every Jew on planet Earth, the kingdom promises can never come to planet Earth, and he can remain the perpetual... uh, a ruler over this world. And so when you see uh, anti-Semitism resurfacing in our age, I just think we need to keep in mind uh, 
that this is all sort of an outworking or a mm-hmm. manifestation of the angelic conflict. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It is very spiritual, straight from the pit. One thing in this article that I thought was fascinating is they say that um, the spread in the late 50s, early 60s of the swastika uh was because of the KGB. Don't blame the Russians. You know, I know that's cliche, but uh, people had been recruited by the KGB, and the reason was to try and further separate Germany from the West. And the resurgence could be um, trying to weaken Israel's ties with the West and completely cut them off, um, of course, by calling them all racists and all these other names. Um, so what do you think about that? We only have a minute. We might have to bring this into the next uh, segment, but... Um, trying to weaken Israel's ties with the West and make the West hate them? Well, I think that's part of the prophetic scenario because Zechariah 12, verse 3, Mm -hmm. and Zechariah 14, verse 2 says all nations. And last time I checked, all means all. Yes. You know, all nations um, will come against the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem, you know, in the last days. So when there's a concerted plan to weaken Israeli ties with the West, as sad as that is, that really doesn't surprise me because that's what God indicated would exist, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the age. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. And it's just a fascinating subject when we, we explore these things. Andy, we really appreciate your insights on all that. Uh, SLBC.org, Sugarland uh, Bible Church. We are going to be back shortly. We're going to talk a little bit more about Israel. I want to talk about how the Middle East crisis affects the USA, and we're talking in terms of immigration and the terrorists that are speaking, uh, sneaking in. Who are they? And uh, that that situation is just complete, uh, complete total breakdown these days. And you're from Texas, so we'll talk with you about that. I want to talk about the pre-wrath rapture position in the second half as well. So we're going to switch gears completely. And we're going to explore that as much as we're able in the time we're given. So a two-minute break here. Stay with me. We'll be right back with Andy Woods. Our social media pages are shadow banned. Thanks for your prayers and sharing our posts at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth. My name is Mary Danielson, and we are speaking with Andy Woods on this Tuesday in January. And we're having a great conversation about uh, where we're at here after a little over 100 days since the October 7th barbarity at the hand of Hamas. And so we've covered some interesting perspectives. I love to get a, a pastor's perspective on that. And and before we switch gears completely, we want to talk about the pre-wrath rapture. I want to ask Andy about how the Middle East crisis affects the USA, and I think specifically immigration, because terrorists are you know, sneaking in or pouring in. I don't know which word to use there. Andy, are these known terrorists or random troublemakers? And uh, if they're known terrorists, we're talking uh, their children uh, being a continued curse to our security. Are they Iranian? Um, what have you got for me on that? It does affect us because of our open borders policy. And our border is wide open. Mm-hmm. And we have absolutely no idea, you know, who's coming across our, you know, particularly our southern border. And when you look at some really astute uh, analysts, uh, I'm thinking of people like Todd Benzman, you know, and others. Uh, they'll, they'll all tell you that vast amounts of Middle Eastern people, sometimes called, you know, OTMs other than Mexican, you know, are coming across our border. And we, we frankly have no idea who they are. Um, we, we know of, of a few of them, but a lot of them we, we just don't know anything about them. And I was sort of shocked to discover that, 
90% of the mosques in the United States, 90% are run by Hamas. And so you have essentially building in the United States something that the Israelis have with Gaza, you know, a terrorist uh, uh, sort of cell groups within their own borders. Well, that's happening right now in our own country. And, and keep in mind what they say in Iran, that Israel is the little Satan, you know, America is, is the great Satan. So given this uh, phenomenon that's happening, um, we can no longer just look at the Middle East as, oh, that's something over there that doesn't concern us. Mm-hmm. It concerns us here. Mm-hmm. And the number one issue in this, uh, we're now in an election year, is are we going to close this border or not? I saw the Supreme Court um, tried to stop the state of Texas, where I live, from some common-sense border enforcement mm-hmm. in their latest decision. And it's just frustrating to watch these political candidates talk about all these irrelevant things, you know, about how tall somebody is or what kind of boots they wear, you know, all these, these you know, stupid topics when, you know, we, we've got a major problem here. Our border is wide open, and somebody better put a stop to it, mm-hmm. or we're not going to have a country anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're going to have a, we're going to have terror cells within our nation, and we're going to have a, a culture within our culture that has no intention of assimilating. And that's the problem with not making a moral distinction between legal immigration and, and illegal immigration. Mm-hmm. And people have lost their minds over this because I understand in New York. Children are sent home to study online so that the illegal immigrants can go to their schools. And, and I think there's going to be a lot more of that delusional action. Uh, I, I just can't believe how this causes people to, to do such incredibly irrational things. And, um, yeah, like you said, something has to happen soon. I know there's, they call them sleeper cells. Well, the real sleepers are the Americans who think that this is going to end well. <laughs> Right? Yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. Oh, so, so much to talk about with that. Um, the U.S. is still allied with Israel, um, and, and they've received military help from us over the years. They've received other types of support. I, my take on this, Andy, is the U.S. has interests in Israel, but it's only pragmatic interests. It doesn't mean that we are still an ally. There's a very fine line there. And I think things started to change with, um, O'Biden, Obama-Biden, maybe subtly. I think it's all about interests. I don't think it's an ally at all under Biden. What What are your thoughts on that before we move on? No, I, I agree with you. Um, it's more pragmatic. It's not um, theological. And when you go back into American history, you know, it really was theological. Yes. It was George Washington uh, that basically gave to the Jewish people something they've never had when he wrote a famous letter to the Torah Synagogue and quoted their scripture, you know, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, and says you'll be able to, you know, enjoy your life sitting under your own vine and, and fig tree, and none shall make you afraid. Mm. You know, quoting, the, you know, Micah, I believe is where that, and Isaiah, but I think he was referencing Micah in that letter. And then you go to Harry, uh, Harry Truman, who was a Baptist, and uh, he was among the first to recognize the newborn state of Israel on account of his Baptist heritage. And then you go from there to Richard Nixon, who received a call from Golda Meir in the middle of the night after his own uh, cabinet 
Henry Kissinger said to Nixon, let the Jews bleed for a while, mm. you know, in the midst of, uh, at that point, which was the, I believe, the Yom Kippur War. And Nixon remembered a story that his mother told him, coming from the book of Esther, Nixon being raised in a Quaker home. And she was reading him the story of the book of Esther one night and said, Richard, if you're ever in a position of power, I want you to use that position of authority to help the Jewish people, which, of course, is what the whole book of Esther is about. And so Nixon picks up the phone, and he hears Golda Meir's voice pleading for armaments and help in the midst of a crisis. And he says to her, I finally realized, you know, why I became president of the United States you know, to help Israel during this time. So our, our DNA and our genetics in terms of helping Israel has always been theological. It's not just pragmatic. And so I, I agree with you that this biblical understanding has sort of been erased, you know, through recent administrations like Obama and Biden. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We truly are in the last days. Wow, thank you for that insight. I had not heard that about Nixon, uh, but of course, just in time for the, the 73 war. So very, very interesting story about him. We're going to switch gears, try not to give anybody any whiplash, but we want to talk about <laughs> um, the pre-wrath rapture position. And it's not something we've actually even talked about here. Uh, we we are uh, pre-tribbers, um, but... Um, and I guess you could say that I'm technically pre-wrath because I believe I will be raptured before God's sure. wrath, right? Um, uh, but timing is what differentiates between pre-trib and pre-wrath and the definition of wrath. So who are the gentlemen behind this? You know, I, um, I think it's a fairly recent teaching. And of course, the irony is that people say, well, the pre-trib view is new. It's not historical. But who, who's behind this? Um, give us some, name us some names, Andy. Well, probably it originates with a guy named Van Campen, who wrote a book called The Sign. And his work uh, was sort of reproduced in scholarly form through a guy named Marvin Rosenthal, who used to be pre-tribulational and was a a minister with Friends of Israel, but then left because he moved into the so-called pre-wrath camp. There's some people today, some younger men, that have sort of, uh, you know, are carrying on the baton, so to speak. One of them is named Alan Kirshner, who has a whole single-issue ministry, you know, trying to promote this constantly. Mm-hmm. But really the idea, and I, I appreciate what you said, that I'm, I'm pre-wrath, <laughs> and, and that's what's <laughs> tricky about their labeling of mm-hmm. themselves, is they don't, you know, their view, really, their label doesn't tell you what they believe. I mean, mid-trib, you know what that means. Post-trib, I know what that means. The rapture happens at the end. Mid-trib, middle, pre-trib, I know what that means. Rapture happens before the tribulation. But what does pre-wrath mean? It doesn't really identify their 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 timing, uh, their view of the timing of the rapture. But when you kind of get you know through the weeds and figure out what they're saying, they're basically trying to argue that uh, the first roughly three-quarters of the tribulation period. And they don't like three-quarters because they say, we just believe it happens somewhere in the second half. But So it's not exactly three-quarters, but it's the only conceptual tool I know of to accurately sh- show people their timing of the rapture. They, they basically think that the church is going to be here 
for the first half of the tribulation period, and at some point in the second half, I would say roughly three-quarters into it, the church will be raptured out, because the true orge, or wrath of God, doesn't start until the final 25% of the tribulation period. And so everything that's happened up to that point in time is either the wrath of man or the wrath of Satan, not God's wrath. And they'll point out that Jesus said in the world we will have through lips, you know, tribulations. And it is true that we are promised a deliverance from God's eschatological wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, but he doesn't promise us deliverance from tribulations. And so um, we're going to be here for the tribulations, <laughs> but yeah. just not God's wrath, which doesn't happen until the final 25%. So they don't believe in the doctrine of eminency, that Jesus can come back at any moment. They think roughly three-quarters of the tribulation has to elapse first. And they, they're, I think, very confused about who's causing all of those problems in the tribulation. Because the last time I checked, Revelation 5 comes before Revelation 6. <laughs> and in Revelation 5, mm-hmm. Jesus takes the seven-sealed scroll, which, which is the title deed to the earth, and he starts to peel, you know, out back the various seals in Revelation 6 so that the scroll is unrolled. And every time a seal is peeled back, a judgment hits the planet. So I don't have to see the word wrath, you know, any more than I have to see the word wrath in the Genesis account, Genesis 6 through 8, to conclude that the flood is God's wrath. Uh you know, Genesis 6 through 8 doesn't use the expression God's wrath when it talks about the flood, but conceptually, clearly it is. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, conceptually, the wrath of God is present because Jesus is opening the scroll and bringing forth all of these judgments. And sure, he can use Satan to bring forth judgments, the Antichrist to bring forth judgments. Uh, there's a, a destruction of a quarter of the world's population that Jesus is causing by opening this seven-sealed scroll. So I'm, I am pre-wrath in the sense that I think the whole seven-year tribulation period is God's wrath, mm-hmm. and so I won't be here for any of it. Mm-hmm. But they've got it divided into these three parts, um, and the first two-thirds of it, roughly, they don't think represents God's wrath. It's Satan's wrath or man's wrath, but not God's wrath. It's just through lipsis or tribulations that we are destined for. So I hope that kind of makes sense. It does. It makes a lot of sense. And I, I want to back up a little bit because this this wrath of man and wrath of Satan, I don't have any biblical definitions for that. You know, Satan is not an equal power to God. This one has wrath, that one has wrath. Satan is in rebellion against God. So is there any definition? Um, I mean, I'm going through my mind. What is the wrath of man? Uh, is it the Great Reset? Because you know, if if it's wrath and it's from God, the whole world will know that. There's, you won't be asking yourself, gee, is this wrath? Is this not wrath? So is there a definition anywhere in the Bible that man has wrath and Satan has wrath, except that his time is short? Well, sometimes, you know, the word orge is used of man's wrath. You know, for example, uh, Paul uh, in Romans 13 you know, says we sh- that government has the ability to execute wrath. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's you have to watch that word wrath very carefully. It's used differently in different contexts. Mm-hmm. You have to define 
the word by how it's used in a given context. But you see, when you get to Revelation 6, it's a totally different scenario. You've got Jesus opening a scroll in heaven, which causes all of these judgments, one of which destroys 25% of the world's population. Now, if that's not the wrath of the Lamb, I guess I don't know what the wrath of the Lamb looks like. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to see the word wrath, because one of their arguments is, well, the word wrath doesn't show up until the, what is it, the sixth seal judgment at the end of Revelation 6. But you see, that's when the pagans or the unbelievers figure out what's going on, and they say the great day of his wrath has come. And who can stand? And that's a statement that backs up all the way to the beginning of the chapter, I believe, uh, grammatically, exegetically. It goes back to the beginning of the chapter, and that should be kind of self-explanatory, because Jesus is in heaven opening this seven-sealed scroll, you know, causing all of these problems. And so when Paul promised us that we are exempted from God's wrath, that's what he's talking about. Uh, the, the wrath of God is coming. Jesus is going to open this seven-sealed scroll, and and we as the church are not candidates for it mm-hmm. uh, because of divine promises that have been given to us. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we can't be in any part of the tribulation period. The pre-wrath view is basically trying to argue that what's happening in Revelation 6, most of Revelation 6, is really not God's wrath at all. It's man's wrath or Satan's wrath, you know, as if God can't use Satan mm-hmm. <laughs> or man mm-hmm. to bring forth his wrath to the earth. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, I'm just kind of trying to outline the parameters of the debate a little bit so people can wrap their minds around, you know, what this perspective is teaching. Yeah, yeah. well, there's a lot of clarity there, and I'm, I'm grateful for those uh, comments. And also, um, the the two biblical halves of the tribulation, we were talking about a little bit of fuzzy math and, and dividing uh Revelation or the events into interesting fractions. Um, Daniel, I think it's Daniel 9, talks about the abomination of desolation. How does that fit with, with uh, uh, the, the fractions of uh, the tribulation period? Right. Well, I think you just put your finger on, you know, what I think is, um, you know, a really significant problem. They've got the tribulation period basically divided into three parts. Um, the first half is what they call the beginning of sorrows. And then the first half, roughly, of the second half, they call the Great Tribulation. And in their minds, the wrath of God hasn't hit yet. But once you get to the second part of the second half, they call that the Day of the Lord. And that's where God's wrath you know, finally hits the planet. And so this is a little odd because they've got the tribulation period divided into three like this. Mm-hmm. But you just you just pointed out the key passage, Daniel nine twenty seven. I mean, there's no passage that I know of that ever divides the tribulation period in, in, into three parts. Um, it, it constantly uses the expression time times and a half a time one thousand. 260 days, 42 months, those are always synonyms for three and a half years, and it will use those different expressions to draw your attention to one half or the other. But the the division of the tribulation goes back to Daniel 9.27, which describes what the Antichrist is going to do right at the midpoint. And in fact, Jesus himself told the Jews living in Jerusalem 
uh, or, or in Judea rather, to flee into the mountains the moment that midpoint occurs. Mm-hmm. So Jesus himself recognized the two-part structure. Uh, the two-part structure is in Daniel 9.27, uh, other passages in Daniel build on it. Countless passages in the book of Revelation build on it. Uh, um, no, And so to come at the Bible with a tripartite structure all of a sudden mm-hmm. is sort of suspicious because it's almost as if they're taking an artificial grid and imposing it over the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons I think it becomes self-evident that these people are not on the right track with their perspective, because they're taking something that God says is two parts, and they're trying to say, no, we're really talking here about three parts, even though those three parts are not self-evident, but the two parts are. Mm-hmm. Okay, and also, um, we have about seven minutes left, and I want to ask you briefly about the restrainer, because they do not, uh, pre-wrath, do not believe the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, uh, restraining evil, taking the church home. Who did they say the restrainer is? Well, uh, they believe that the restrainer is, is Michael the Archangel. Um, Marvin Rosenthal, in his book, says that. And, I mean, there's a reason why they say that. They can't have the restrainer being the spirit through the church because um, once, you know, our view is uh, that res- once that restraint is removed, then the tribulation period um can potentially start as the Antichrist comes forward and enters into the covenant, you know, with unbelieving Israel. That that starts the tribulation, and that, that can't happen, tribulation period, rather, and that can't happen as long as the restrainer is here. And we think the restrainer is the Holy Spirit through the church holding back the lawless one. So they've got to redefine who the restrainer is, and they define him as Michael the Archangel, which is a little tough to argue, in my opinion. First of all, Michael's already going to be busy. He already has a job. Mm-hmm. He's protecting Israel, Daniel 12, verse 1, during that time period. That's his ministry. There's no verse that indicates Michael's ministry is holding back Satan's man of the hour, Antichrist, for 2,000 years. And beyond that, the Antichrist is going to be um, Satan's masterpiece, He'll perfectly express himself, you know, through the Antichrist. And uh, therefore, whoever the restrainer is, he's got to be fighting the devil for 2,000 years or holding back Satan for 2,000 years. Jude, I believe it's verse 9, indicates Michael doesn't like to do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. When he got into a dispute with um, Satan concerning the body of Moses, he just said, the Lord rebuke you. Uh, he doesn't like to go out and openly contest Satan, and yet their scenario has Michael, you know, holding back literally Satan's man of the hour for 2,000 years. So they're kind of shoving Michael into a role that, you know, he's not currently doing and really doesn't want to do. And beyond that, when you look at it in Greek, in Second Thessalonians 2, 6, and 7, the gender switches related to restrainer. You know, he who restrains, it's neuter, I believe, in verse 6 of Second Thessalonians 2, and it's masculine in verse 7. And that fits the Holy Spirit view <clears throat> very, very nicely, because pneuma, spirit, is a neuter noun. Hmm. And yet Jesus frequently called the Holy Spirit he in the upper room discourse, 
when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So he switches to the masculine pronoun, he. So the switch from neuter you know, to masculine works really well with the Holy Spirit view. It doesn't work well with the Michael view, because I don't under, really understand how Michael's gender you know, mm. switches mm. from neuter to masculine. So those are just a, a few problems you know, with this idea that you know, Michael the archangel is the restrainer in Second uh, Thessalonians 2, 6, okay. and 7. I did give a whole paper at this uh, last December at the pre-trib study group. People can get the full explanation there. You can get the paper, the PowerPoint, uh, okay. audio file, video, uh, if, if people want to go deeper into the okay. subject. Great, great. So much in God's Word. It just uh, There's just so much there. What an incredible uh, uh, communication that is from the Lord. Uh, we only have two minutes left or so. Andy, imminency, um, holy living, uh, that purifying effect of not knowing the day or the hour. Let's just encourage people as we go out. What can you tell us or what do you want to say about that purifying effect that the Blessed Hope has? Well, I mean, we just live differently. That's just Mm -hmm. a fact of life. If we believe Jesus can come back today. And I've talked to a lot of these pre-wrath types and I I always ask them, can Jesus come back today? And they always tell me no Hmm. because they've got to have three quarters of the tribulation period, you know, elapsing first. Um, you know, if if you're working for someone and your boss says, you know, I'll be back in six months, you work differently versus him saying, I can poke my head in the door, you know, at any moment. And the doctrine of eminency is not the idea that the rapture is going to occur today, but it's the idea that the rapture could occur today. And it's been that way for 2,000 years, and I think the Lord has wanted every generation to believe that Jesus can come back in the next split second. Because when you think that way, you live differently. You know, any moment I could be whisked away into eternity and stand before the Lord at the Bema Seat judgment to determine rewards, not not salvation, but rewards based on how I invested my life in Christ. And uh, if you take that doctrine away and you put a bunch of, uh, you know, Uh, prophetic concepts that have to elapse first before Jesus can come back, then eminence, the the, the cord is cut, you know, related to the doctrine of eminency or the any moment return of of Christ. It's kind of a scenario that you see at the end of Matthew 24 where the servant says, you know, my master delays his coming, and he starts to beat his fellow servants. Um, He denied eminency, and his life sort of went into kind of unspiritual living. And that's what happens when eminency is destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you, you just live differently, you think differently, yeah. your values are different. Mm-hmm. And there's this mindset that says, well, I'll, I'll kind of, you know, get my act together as we get closer. But for the time being, I'm going to live the way mm-hmm. I want. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of a... Wow. Well, thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much for clarifying that. I think of Dominion theology too, which a lot of the church is caught up in, where we're going to make the world great. Uh, We have to perfect everything and every system so Jesus can come back. So there's another disaster. Um, Thank you for helping us understand our great and blessed hope, Andy Woods. Thank you so much for being with me today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, another podcast on the books, and uh, we have Paul Blair tomorrow. Will be a replay. 
Jeff Sowall of Calvary Chapel, Madison on Thursday. Looking forward to that. Jeff always follows uh, Stand for the Truth with the Upward Call. Headlines on Friday. So that's what we got the rest of the week. I hope you stay with me. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Have a great day on purpose.